Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As a mist set in and the sea began to swell, British and Argentine warships circled each other off the coast of the Falkland Islands. Yet hidden beneath the waves, HMS Conqueror, a Royal Navy submarine, stalked the Argentine ship, the Belgrano. The Belgrano was 44 years old by this point. It was originally a light cruiser built by the US and named the USS Phoenix. It had survived Pearl Harbor and risen from the ashes it went on to serve the Argentine cause. Yet just after 1813, on May 2nd, the nuclear-powered HMS Conqueror loaded its torpedoes and with its first two strikes, tore the Belgrano apart. The blast alone killed 275 of the Belgrano's 1,093 crew. This was the end of the Belgrano and a key turning point in the Falklands War. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and for our second instalment of our Falklands mini-series, I'm joined by Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, the official historian of the Falklands War. Professor Friedman describes in dramatic detail the key turning points of the conflict, such as the sinking of the Belgrano, the Battle of Goose Green, and the final push to Stanley. Enjoy. Professor Friedman, hello. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, to have the official historian of the Falklands campaign to tell us about key points of this history at this 40th anniversary is an absolute and distinct pleasure. As part of this series, just to give you a little bit of background, we've had Professor Klaus Dodds on to tell us about the broader geopolitical elements of the Falklands campaign and, of course, where the Falklands actually is, which surprisingly few people seem to have known at the time. And then we've had some amazing recounts from veterans that have fought on both sides of the conflict. But it's great to have you on to be able to go into some of these key turning points of the Falklands War. So I don't know where is best to start. Maybe I could ask you what you think is the first key turning point that we should look at. Could this be something like the sinking of the Belgrano or the Sheffield? Where should we start? Well, you start at the beginning, which was the Argentine invasion on the 2nd of April 1982, or probably the point at which the British realised there was going to be an invasion, which was the 31st of March 
a few days before where intelligence confirmed that's what was likely to happen. Because if the British had decided at that point, as was the first advice from the Ministry of Defence, that there was not a lot that could be done about it, then we'd have a very different history. We'd be talking about the early collapse of the Thatcher government and then sort of final humiliation on lines with Suez. But what we know about that day on the 31st of March is that Admiral Sir Henry Leach, the first sea lord, found the intelligence. He came back from a trip visiting ships and he went to find Mrs Thatcher and to key ministers in the House of Commons where they were discussing the situation without anybody from the armed forces present and told them that the British could send a task force. And they were surprised by this advice because it was different from what they'd been told. And the result was Mrs Thatcher was relieved after it had been confirmed that this was indeed possible. The day after the Argentine invasion, uh, that is the 3rd of April, in an extraordinary House of Commons parliamentary debate on a Saturday, she was able to announce that the task force would sail. And that changed everything because Argentina had not put into its own calculations this possibility. And it meant that first, there was now a possibility of a serious military clash. And secondly, that there was a degree of urgency surrounding the diplomacy which might have been a bit more lacklustre without the British not being able to do much other than try to get other people to impose sanctions on Argentina. So it changed the whole complexion. And just to mention the other important part of Leach's advice was that when you send a task force, you send everything you could. You didn't do it by half measures. You assumed that this was not just for political show, not just to strengthen the British hand in negotiations, but was intended to... If necessary, it had to be able to actually manage a landing on the Falklands to re-establish British administration. So it was pretty strong and, in the end, effective military advice. But to what extent did the British military actually have the capabilities to launch this kind of task force over 8,000 miles? Is this something that we'd planned for, something we expected to happen? It was neither planned for nor expected. I mean, the assumption was that it couldn't be done. And the previous year, John Knott, the, the Secretary of State for Defence, had launched a review of British defence capabilities in which the only thing that, the, apart from a small marine platoon, that was there to defend the Falklands, the ice patrol boat HMS Endurance, which spent a few months of each year in the area, was to be scrapped. And indeed, if the full review had been implemented, the UK wouldn't have had any carriers or even much of an amphibious capability. So the Argentine timing was a bit off if they'd waited a bit. Actually, not that much longer. They would have been in a far better position. They had managed to launch their invasion at a time when a certain amount of the fleet was at sea and exercises off Gibraltar, so it wasn't that hard to send them to the South Atlantic. And it was Easter, so... Uh, it was possible to mobilise the Royal Marines and the Paris, who were the first groups to be sent as part of the task force. So the timing of the Argentinians was pretty bad. But the British were sort of surprised by their ability to do what they did. They said it hadn't been part of any plans. A lot of it had to be improvised. So let's move through to our next turning point. Perhaps this is the moment that the war turns hot, the moment that diplomacy potentially fails here and we move towards active and open 
conflict. What day could we say that this really starts? And and was this something that the British task force always had in mind? Was it to move in and to engage as soon as possible? Or were there key moments that triggered this open hostilities? Well, it took uh, a number of weeks to get to the Falklands. And while that, while the task force was sailing, there was an intensive diplomacy, which led by the US Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, which came to an end at the end of April. And the British wanted it to come to an end at that point because the task force was in place. Now, the, the challenge that was faced was how to prepare for a landing. The, the amphibious force was not there. This was the advanced units of the of the carriers and the warships that had arrived. And the basic challenge was how do you take out as much as possible of the Argentine Navy and Air Force? And to do that, first, they changed the rules of engagement. Up to this point, there had been a 200-mile, it's called an exclusion zone, which was basically to prevent the resupply of the Falklands from the Argentine mainland. It had first been essentially directed against ships because only some UK submarines could stop it. But once the task force was around and they had air power, it became a total exclusion zone. But now the rules of engagement were changed so that the Argent, there was a single Argentine carrier, 25th of May, and that obviously could attack the task force without having to go anywhere close to the exclusion zone. So that was done uh, right at the end of April. And Admiral Woodward, who was in charge of the task force's plan, was to give every impression that the landings were starting in order to, to draw out the Argentine force. So this included the uh, sort of the main RAF contribution, which was the so-called Black Buck Raid, where Vulcan bombers went from Ascension Island and dropped not that many bombs on the runway, but sort of made a difference and worried the Argentinians about the potential reach of UK air power, perhaps even threatening the mainland. But most importantly, ships, British ships were seen, were recognised by the Argentines to be getting closer. And there were some landings, but these were just SAS to do reconnaissance. It was not a full landing, but the Argentinians got it into their head. The landing did take place, so off came the Air Force and off came the Argentine Navy. Their problem was, or the problem for the British was, that first of the Air Force, there were a couple of engagements, which the UK Sea Harriers won, sort of the dogfights, but that persuaded the Argentinians just to go back and and wait. So they didn't attract much of the Air Force. With the Navy, it was altogether more serious because the Argentine Navy came out to fight with one group led, or three groups, one led by the carrier, the 25th of May, the other led by the cruiser, the, the, the Belgrano, and there was a third group as well. But the carrier group and the, uh, and the cruiser group were the most important. And they sort of sense we're going for a pincer movement against uh, Woodward's forces. Now, Woodward wanted the, the Navy to come out, but he also assumed that the British nuclear submarines would have a fix on these units as they came out. Well, they did on the Belgrano. We you know that HMS Conqueror was following the Belgrano, but that was not the case with the carrier. So the scary thing for the British was that the carrier were, was out and about and if it got close enough, would be able to launch its aircraft against the task force. And so that was the position on the 1st of May. 
what happened was first the wind wasn't strong enough so it became a real problem for the argentinians they didn't have enough behind them to launch the aircraft with with sufficient fuel and bombs so they're gradually sort of stripping stuff out to the point where they were doubtful given what they would face from uk air defenses when they reached the task force that it would be worth their while so they were they were having these sort of doubts. But then uh, a harrier from the task force spotted the Argentinian group, the carrier group, and the Argentinians knew that they were spotted. So you have one of these moments where the British now thought, oh gosh, we're in danger because there's a carrier group coming towards us. And then nobody seems to have found it. But the Argentinians were now worried that they'd been spotted, plus the weather. So as the Argentinians decided to turn round, the British Woodward decided that he had to strike where he could. And as he couldn't get at the carrier at that time, he could get at the cruiser. So he ordered a strike against Belgrano. Now, he didn't have the authority to do that, as he well knew. So it went back to London, uh, where Admiral Herbert, in charge of the submarine force, sort of intercepted it. And he took it to the chiefs of staff, who then took it to the government who were meeting in Chequers that day, uh, and basically said rules of engagement have now got to be changed to allow HMS Conqueror to torpedo the Belgrano. And despite many dramatic representations of this moment, it was a, quite a short discussion because it didn't seem to be very difficult to the government. And it had no, and it was nothing to do with peace talks going on or anything. It was just a straightforward military judgment, which the cabinet wasn't going to dismiss. But it took an awfully long time for this to go. How long are we talking there? Because that does sound like a long time. That loop of information transmission at that period isn't short, is it? No, and it wasn't helped by the fact that Conqueror's communications were very poor. Its antennae had been damaged, so it wasn't picking up messages or they were garbled. And then it was reporting back that the Belgrano had changed its course and, and so on. So it took about eight hours, which is why the sinking of the Belgrano in the end appeared detached from the events which had prompted it, and that led to controversy. So on the 2nd of May, the it was attacked, was sunk with, with tremendous loss of life. And this was the first serious, I mean, people had lost their lives already because uh, they'd been in the sort of initial skirmishes on the 2nd or 3rd of April and then when the British had retaken the island of South Georgia. But this was the first time there had been such a loss of life. And it was politically shocking and led to yet more diplomacy and pressure on the UK to try to find a non-violent way out of the struggle. But in fact, from the military perspective, the sinking did exactly what it was supposed to do because the Argentine Navy never really came out again after that. So that's why it was such an important moment. I mean, politically, because it showed that this was was the real thing and, and, and pretty deadly, and militarily, because actually it dealt with one part of the British problem when it came to landings, which was when the British couldn't be sure that the Navy would stay out, but it made their task that much easier when we get to um, a few weeks later when they landed. Well, it does end up killing 323 crew of the Belgrano. 
And like you say, it has that military effect in the fact that it stops the Argentinians sending ships and only sending in their air force. But is there a way that we can directly relate the events of sinking the Belgrano to then the attacks on the HMS Sheffield just a few days later? Is this in retaliation? Partly, yeah. I mean, I think the Argentinians would have been interested anyway, now that they knew the task force was in the area of mounting attacks. They had a number of French subaitandars with the air-to-ship missile, the Exocet, and two of their aircraft found a number of ships. And, you know, Sheffield wasn't as alert as some of the other British warships, for a variety of, of reasons uh, senior officer had gone to get a cup of coffee, you know, mundane things like that. It, it just wasn't as prepared, so they got caught. The loss of life wasn't as severe, but it was a shock certainly to the Royal Navy, and it was the loss of quite an important ship. Oddly, if the British hadn't announced it, the Argentinians might not have known that they hit it, because as soon as they launched their missiles, the, uh, the two Argentine jets had turned away. Um, but the British did announce it as, as, as because there'd been loss of life. And um, so it would have got out anyway. And it was seen at the time as sort of allowing the Argentines to claim sort of honour on their side, that they'd shown that they could fight back. And again, it gave a more of a push to the diplomacy, which from this point was handled largely by um, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Paris de Quere, who was Peruvian, but actually in many ways was a better negotiator than Haig. But it still didn't lead to anything. The destruction of the Sheffield was the first Royal Navy ship sunk in action since the Second World War. And you mentioned that this has a, a military impact. But what impact does this have on the War Cabinet and on the British public as a whole? Is this demoralising or is this something that really creates a staunch hardening of the public reaction to the war? I think it was a shock. When I was doing my official history, I was told by one of Lewin, Admiral Lewin, who's chief of defence staff and the main advisor to the prime minister, of what had happened after the Sheffield, where everybody was very gloomy and so on. And Lewin came in and, and said, what's everybody so gloomy about? And off the Sheffield. And they said, he said, there's no point in having escorts unless you're prepared to lose them. And it always struck me that one of the important things about the Falklands is that you have, in a way, a Second World War generation, I mean, Lewis had been an officer during the Second World War, passing on, in a sense, their wisdom, their grasp of military realities to a new generation, which was, you know, if you're in a war, you're going to lose stuff. And I think by this time, everybody was so committed, which is what happens with wars, that there wasn't really a turning back option. So, you know, you have to learn from the experience, be more alert, which by and large they were, and carry on. I mean, you've also got to remember of the War Cabinet, apart from Thatcher, who had no military experience, the rest of the War Cabinet, and then Cecil Parkinson, who barely had anything. But Francis Pym and Willie Whitelaw both had won military crosses during the Second World War in the, in the army, not at that time in the Gurkhas, the Attorney General had served in the Futero. So they understood that, the, you know, in wars, things go wrong and, and casualties occur. So in that sense, it could have had more of an effect than it did. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. 
Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's strange to think that 40 years had passed by that point since some of the largest battles of the Second World War, and we're now at the point where 40 years has passed since the Falklands campaign. A, uh, a very different time to be thinking about these sort of things. But as we move forward with the Falklands War, and we look towards the amphibious landings on Pebble Island, is this again a reaction to trying to now degrade the Argentinian Air Force, which we've seen could be effective through its bombing of the HMS Sheffield? Well, Pebble Island was, was a Special Forces raid, which was very successful. One of the most effective things Special Forces did, they took out, because they were concerned to take out the limited air capabilities the Argentinians had on the Falklands itself, which by and large was done successfully. I mean, the main amphibious landing was on San Carlos Bay, where it went successfully and then was followed by regular Argentine bombardment. Well, there's a number of key battles that we could go through from this point some of which, of course, have famously gone down in history. And I think one that we'd be remiss not to touch upon is the Battle of Goose Green on the 28th to the 29th of May, when the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment dug in against Argentinian troops. Can you take us through the events of those two days? Well, I think you can't understand it without going back a bit to the effect of the landings on San Carlos. 
So you know, it was, I mean, more ships were lost. More ships might have been lost if the Argentine fusing of their bombs had been better. It was a real problem getting all the kit and people and so on ashore, which took a number of days. And meanwhile, sort of London was getting increasingly impatient because they wanted the uh, the force that had landed to move on. While, I mean, Julian Thompson, who was the brigadier in charge, was also waiting for his commanding officer, Jeremy Moore, who was coming with the second brigade, but was on the QE2, and American communications weren't working properly either. And then in the middle of all of this, the Argentinians had a successful strike against the Atlantic Conveyor, which was a container ship, which was carrying Chinook helicopters and lots of other important supplies. So Thompson saw you know, some of the lift capability he was depending upon going, you know, going to the bottom of the sea with only one Chinook really available. So you have to look at it in terms of the dilemma that, Thompson faced. He was being pressed to take action. He, it was going to be difficult to move stuff. The last orders he'd had from Moore was to wait for him after securing the bridgehead. But he'd always had in mind the possibility of a raid against Goose Green and Darwin, which were two settlements close-ish to where the landing had taken place. There was no absolute necessity to take them because they weren't actually in the way to Stanley, which is the capital of the Falklands, which is where he wanted eventually to get to. But they were available. And there was a view, which I think probably turned out to be correct, that if you landed a blow against the Argentinian army at this point, that would undermine their morale and boost British morale at the same time. It would establish a sort of supremacy, psychological supremacy, and it was worth doing. Now, as Thompson was the first to admit, because he thought he saw this as a distraction, something he'd been told to do from London at a time when he thought he might have better options, but he, he accepted the you know, orders are orders. But instead of making it a sort of a two-battalion assault, he left two power to go on its own, commanded by Colonel H. Jones, who was a sort of very tough and aggressive individual who was by all accounts, up for the fight. And it was never clear whether this was to be a raid, which you sort of go in and then come out again, or to actually take the garrison. And it sort of moved into becoming something more of a raid. And the other thing that, that, that wasn't done was there was a limited amount of armour, of armoured cars that could have gone, but they didn't go. And Thompson didn't go himself. He, he left it to Jones to command the raid. As they were in position, news came through from the World Service that the Goose Green had been attacked and already fallen, which was the result of briefings that had gone on in London to reassure Tory backbenchers that all was well with the war. But it was a bit of a, a surprise to the task force, and they were fearful that the main effect would just be to alert the Argentinian garrison, although as one can work out. The Argentinians thought this was British propaganda and dismissed it. But at any rate, it was, it was alarming. You then have a degree of controversy because I think the, the view now is that Jones's plan was overcomplicated and that when it got into trouble, he wasn't particularly taking advice from his subordinates about how it might be rearranged, but he just got increasingly frustrated 
he went forward himself and thought that he was sort of lead by example, which he did and promptly got shot and was killed. His number two had to take over. Now, this was a turning point because it inspired Marines to go forward, but actually didn't in particular. And again, if you talk to those involved, the general view is that Jones's job was not to charge to the front, but to uh, you know manage the battle as best he could from his command position. What made the difference was that the weather cleared a bit and Harriet was able to mount a strike. And also, you know, the just sheer tenacity by the pirates. I mean, the sort of training kicked in, and despite taking quite heavy casualties, they pushed on and eventually managed to persuade the Argentinian garrison that they were larger and more powerful than they were, and that to protect life and save life, including civilians, um, it was best for everybody if they surrendered, which they did. So it was one of those battles that I think the British would have won eventually, but if only because... Thompson probably would have sent in another battalion and and they would have retrieved their position. But it wasn't easy, um, I think, demonstrated to the British and certainly to the Paris that the Argentinians could fight and certainly not cowards and were not going to run away. On the other hand, it did establish that sort of psychological supremacy that the um, that those advocating the, the attack on Goose Green had hoped for. So is it at this point that the British know that they're going to win, that they're heading towards a clear victory? We've got 900 Argentinian prisoners. The Argentine garrison has agreed to its ceasefire and surrender. Another airfield is taken. And the Argentinians here are beaten despite being in a good position and, of course, knowing in advance from the BBC World Service that they're about to be attacked. Is this that turning point in terms of both British political and military thinking that leads us towards that victory a few weeks later? Yes, I mean, the British never lost the initiative. I mean, they had setbacks and there were more setbacks after Goose Creed, but it never looked like they were on the back foot because with each move, they sort of got away with it. So, you know, before the, the, the landings, there'd been South Georgia, where they almost lost a whole load of special forces, but they didn't. They lost a number of ships at San Carlos, but they, nonetheless, the bridgehead was established. It was a tough battle at Green, but nonetheless, they won. So I don't think they, I, I think after this point, it was pretty clear what the result would be, but it wasn't definite. The other thing that you had after this point was that the, the Reinforcements were coming in now as well. The second, the second of the two brigades was about to land. So I think from this point, the Argentinians themselves didn't act as if they expected to win. You know, they, I mean, I think what surprised the British was that they weren't doing the things that, that an army might do, like putting out aggressive patrols, trying to ambush British units, whatever. They just sort of waited for the British to come. But the final push towards Stanley wasn't particularly easy, was it? Because we had the attacks at Bluff Cove, which had a considerable loss for the British before moving on to that final push towards Stanley. Did that in itself dent morale? Did it get people rethinking the strategies and the tactics they had chosen? No, it didn't do that, but it was it was a blow. So it was basically everything, you know, always goes back to logistics and the problem of the lack of helicopters. So there were two lines of advance. One was pretty straightforward through Mount Kent towards Stanley. And then the other one was Brigadier Wilson 
fresh brigade who hadn't been through everything else that had happened up to that point. And the issue was, how do you get them close to Stanley after their arrival? And they were moved by sea, essentially, and on Royal Fleet Auxiliaries. They hadn't experienced the bomb attacks because the Argentine Air Force was, was doing far less. But they were unlucky that as they were unloading at Bluff Cove, the Argentine Air Force decided on another strike and they caught them, caught Welsh guards with considerable loss of life. The British oddly made it appear worse than it was, and it was about 50 or so died, by refusing to give casualty figures and so on. I think in order to hide from the Argentinian command, but actually it wasn't that bad and that they were pressing on. So it, did, it didn't make a lot of difference to the timing of the final attack. But again, it was a reminder that you know, war is a, is a confusing and bloody business. And, and um, you know, there'd been a degree of complacency in how the disembarking had taken place at Bluffco. Well, you've mentioned this final push on Stanley. And one thing that's always fascinated me about this is that it starts with a, a night attack on the 11th of June on that heavily defended ring around the high ground. Is that a, a deliberate decision there to go in for a night attack? Was there a, a calculation that the Argentinian forces couldn't fight as well at night? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you can fight at night, it's better to do so. You, you're likely to catch the forces by surprise, the enemy by surprise. It gives you a bit of cover. You, you can, If you've got the right equipment, you can work out where you are and what, where you're going. Again, these were largely hard fights. But once the Argentinian will was broken, it broke. That was really the end of it. So the, there, were, there were each, each of the... Uh, the sort of individual battles were a bit different, depending on partly on past experience. Two para were a bit less gung ho than they'd been at, at Goose Green, but all of them were effectively executed. Uh, in a sense, the Argentinians from this point were in retreat and, and, in effect, lost the war. And how did the British finally take Stanley? Was it a, a simple walkthrough? Had the positions already been deserted, or was there a final fight, a last stand? No, there was no last stand, nor had the positions been deserted. The British just sort of walked in. It was clear that the garrison was beaten. And you know, the Argentine, I mean, Argentinian logistics had been pretty poor. So their soldiers were tired, hungry, fed up, frightened. So it ended quite simply in the end. So it was, it, you know, it was quite a moment. But Stanley's a small place. It was never going to be sort of major urban warfare, not a desperately easy place to defend, but they didn't really try. Well, Professor Friedman, thank you so much for taking us through those key elements, those turning points in the conflict. Perhaps you could tell us where people can read more about this history. Well, they can read my official history of the Falklands campaign. Two volumes, the first volume, which is a small one about the origins of the war, and the second one, which is quite a thick one, about both the diplomacy and the military action. I mean, there are lots of books now on the individual battles, the naval war, the air war, and so on, and more are coming out now. So there's no shortage of literature. Some of the early ones, for example, the one by Max Hastings and Simon Jenkins are pretty good. I did one before the official history with an Argentinian scholar, Virginia Gamba. It's pretty good because it has the Argentinian perspective. There really isn't that good an account from the Argentinian perspective. There are now some decent accounts of the naval warfare and 
quite a few analysts have, have interviewed quite a lot of the Argentinian pilots and so on. And there was an Argentinian commission into what went wrong. But it, there isn't really, I think, a comprehensive Argentinian account. I may be wrong, but I haven't seen it. Well, we will put the links to your books in the show notes and you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.